Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Today on Truth and Movies, Armando Yunucci swaps Veep for Victorian literature in the Dickens adaptation The Personal History of David Copperfield. This narrative is far more than mere fiction. Are you David Copperfield? I am indeed. It is the true story of the life I was about to lead. Danny Kaluuya and newcomer Jodie Turner-Smith are on the run in the stylish road movie Queen and Slim. It was self-defense. We're in the black money and Clyde. In the city breaking and everybody shaking up with stuff. How you gonna outrun the police? We don't have to outrun them. We just have to make sure they don't know where we are. And in Film Club, we scale the psychedelic heights of Alejandro Jodorowsky's The Holy Mountain. Nothing in your education or experience can have prepared you for this film. Alejandro Jodorowsky's The Holy Mountain. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello there, movie truthers. It's Michael Leader here in the host chair this week, sitting across from Camberley Campbell. Hello. Welcome back, Cam. And a newcomer this week, Leila Latif. Welcome. Hi. So, Leila, would you mind introducing yourself to us? Where might we have read your stuff? Or? Uh, yeah, so you can find me uh, occasionally popping up in Little White Lies and um, I've written about uh, films and race and kind of where that overlaps in The Guardian. And uh, I am a regular contributor on also the food journalism scene. So if you need a restaurant recommendation, I am your gal. Oh, I'm going to grill you about that off <laughs> mic. And that was an unintentional pun. <laughs> <laughs> it was good. So we're easing you in with the Holy Mountain Film Club this week. We'll have to come yes. back later and see what you made of that. But before we get on with the new releases, we do have some business. Up first, the podcast team for Truth and Movies are going on a road trip. We're going to Rotterdam uh, this week to the film festival out there that's running 22nd of January to 2nd of February. We're going over. We're going to record some special episodes, maybe do some interviews as well. It's going to be me, David Jenkins, Elena Lazic. Um, Rotterdam is one of the best festivals in the world. It's huge, it's sprawling. It's one that people come back with all sorts of discoveries from. Their main competition is the Tiger competition, uh, which is mainly about highlighting first and second time feature filmmakers so there's all sorts of discoveries that you can make there it's funny that it happens at the same time as Sundance but if Sundance is the next big American indie hit this, these are the world cinema champs um, but then 
this sprawling uh, program has all sorts of delights in it. Um, you may be going to see a six-hour-long essay film. You can go and see some multimedia installations set in the, the far distant future at an eSports Olympics. There's one I was reading about. But two <laughs> uh, screening events that I've seen that really jumped out at me, um, they're having a focus on Howard Shaw, the composer who's there this year. They're doing a live score screening of Crash, the David Cronenberg film with Howard Shaw's score clearly being highlighted there. They also have Bong Joon-ho, Man of the Moment, out there doing a masterclass. And to mark the occasion, they're doing a special screening of Parasite in black and white, which is an an artistic choice. I'd like to see it. I'd love to see that film again on the big screen. And if Bong's there, incredible. Anything for director Bong. Exactly. But yes, listeners, look out for those special episodes that will be landing in your podcast feeds over the coming days from Rotterdam. We have one more order of business before we go into the new releases. Last week in Film Club, we talked about Terence Malick's Days of Heaven, and you may remember that David Jenkins, uh, well, there's no way of putting it, went off on one about the narrative contrivance about the main characters pretending to be brother and sister rather than husband or wife or lovers. Well, we got an email here from Heather Wall, who actually is the producer of this very podcast. She's schooling us here. Heather took exception a little bit with uh, with D- David's rants and said maybe there's a reference here to the Bible, of course, Terence Malick being quite a, a Bible fan in a way. She says if you Google Terence Malick, Days of Heaven, Abraham, you can see that there's a theory out there online that maybe that relationship between the main characters in Days of Heaven is a reference to the story of Abraham in the Bible. So if you're interested in going down that rabbit hole, maybe David could learn a few things if you follow that Google link. Anyway, we should get on with this week's new releases. Up first, we have Armando Iannucci tackling Dickens in the personal history of David Copperfield. Armando Iannucci brings to life one of Charles Dickens' most cherished characters in the personal history of David Copperfield. From birth to infancy, from adolescence to adulthood, the good-hearted David Copperfield is surrounded by kindness, wickedness, poverty and wealth as he meets an array of remarkable characters in Victorian England. This narrative is far more than mere fiction. Are you David Copperfield? I am indeed. It is the true story of the life I was about to lead. Your mama is ill. How old is she? Very ill. Dangerously ill. She's dead. We're very sorry. I can easily recall people of strong character. Good morning! Good morning. Is it too early for Sherry? A little early. It's never too early for Sherry, is it? So, Layla, Armando Iannucci is mainly known for his TV and film work in satirical comedy. His last feature film was Death of Stalin, of course, in TV. He has In the Loop, The Thick of It, and Veep. This is a bit of a departure for him, right? Yeah, I mean, he has done some BBC programmes kind of espousing his absolute adoration of Dickens before, mm. which I have seen. And um, that was one of the reasons I felt slightly wary coming into this. Right. Um, like, you know, I'm not a huge period drama person and coming into this, like there was, uh, you know, I wasn't particularly thrilled to see like a love letter to David Copperfield. And uh, also, you know, as much as uh, we admire a lot of uh, Armando Iannucci's work, he's not particularly known for diversity. So, mm. uh, you know, even something like Veep um, is a little less diverse than uh, than it could have been. And uh, in the loop and um, in the thick of it are uh, not exactly known for their kind of cosmopolitan casting. However, I actually felt that the colorblind casting worked perfectly well. It's sort of um, something that's often employed on the stage. Um, There's a few other flourishes with casting that, you know, um, 
people's ages often don't really make sense in this film. Right. Uh, you know, you have a couple of characters that play more than one role. Um, and so it does just kind of speak to that sort of modern theatre production thing. And uh, as soon as you sort of settle into it, it's kind of instantly forgotten. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're kind of safe in his hands that he's not kind of doing anything, you know, just for like stunt casting or anything like slightly grubby or um, ill-advised. I loved it. Nice. <laughs> um, I thought it had this like really sweet, whimsical tone with sort of this like lovely bits of like Monty Python surrealism that come in. Like you actually have a little hand coming through the roof. Um, you have like little silent film interludes. You have kind of absurd things that don't really make sense. It has this sort of lovely British warm heart that reminded me a little bit of Paddington Two. Mm. I just kind of wanted to curl up on a sofa at Christmas time and kind of watch it with the whole family. Um, yeah, I thought it was great. Um, he's sort of filters out a lot of the grimness of uh, the actual kind of source material and he's um, papered over some of the kind of slightly more depressing parts and just kind of really elevated a lot of the comedy. Tilda Swinton attacking a donkey is something I could watch a thousand more (laughs) times. Um, Ben Whishaw as Uriah Heep, like he kind of really goes into this like slimy um, obsequious kind of gross, uh, overly humble character and like makes him at times a little heartbreaking but like genuinely hilarious I mean him and his mother talking about heavy cakes was delightful and um, even something like uh, Peter Capaldi's character where on paper it is pretty grim because he's like slowly losing his money and by the end he's sort of you know living on the streets Um, it's all quite jolly and fun I mean when his like when his possessions are taken by the bailiff that sort of uh is one of the more amusing moments of the film. And um, yeah, I really I really enjoyed it. Mm. And even as someone who doesn't particularly rate Dev Patel, I thought he was perfect. Right. He's sort of this like open-faced, smiley, long-limbed kind of human muppet that kind of <laughs> you can very convincingly believe is about 11 at points and 30 <laughs> at others. Like, yeah, I, I was very pleasantly surprised mm-hmm. by this film. If we stick with Dev for a second, there has been some talk about this, this colorblind casting, mm-hmm. you know, Dev Patel playing David Copperfield. What effect does that give, and should it is it really as big a deal as we as we think? Well, I think from quite early on, I felt that he was telling us to just forget about it. Mm-hmm. This is not going to make sense. We've got to have uh, people's races will not add up. At first, I thought maybe his late father was supposed to be Indian, but then that quickly mm-hmm. becomes apparent that they're just not doing it. So you do have to kind of take it on good faith that he's he means nothing by. Dev Patel's race and you are just entirely supposed to kind of put it to one side Yeah, so Campbell what do you make of Dave Copperfield? Um, I was going to say about it being this very sincere and uh, often jovial film even at its saddest points, uh, it came as a surprise to me because it's not like Iannucci is known for being particularly warm and fuzzy when like his last film The Death of Stalin basically took all of its grimmest elements and just sharpened it Mm -hmm. to a point and it's having this main character sort of ping pong back and forth between poverty and wealth and back again. And he sort of all, takes it all in his stride. Uh, so I thought it was very interesting for him to sort of suddenly completely uh, work against type and have this very pleasant, earnest film. As for the colorblind casting, I've been thinking a lot about it in relation to a lot of demand that I've seen of uh, Greta Gerwig's Little Women, right. um, where people were sort of um, suggesting the same approach be taken to maybe like the March sisters where where I don't think I would I don't think that would work for that film in particular because that's a film that's kind of ostensibly about their whiteness uh here it's it's more um focused on this sort of 
upstairs downstairs dynamic and these uh different class politics uh more so than i've never read david copperfield so i can't say how much race plays into that dynamic in the book or at all it's it just it just worked i Mm -hmm. think especially with um the inconsistencies that it creates and you've got this character telling you up front that this is a true story like this is a story of my life and it sort of gives you this slight remove uh from whether or not that's true which an element i kind of enjoyed whether i'm though i'm not sure (laughs) whether or not that is the point of that i I, it's a sort of uh side effect that i came to enjoy the sort of unreliable Mm -hmm. uh unstable element of that talking about this film reminds me of the conversation we had around this table with other guests at the time about the day shall come the chris morris film chris morris and mario nucci of course worked together in television in the 90s on the day to day and they were seen at the time as the two great satirists of british comedy and it's very marked that armando at this time where we always need satirists most, some would say, is going into the past, going into literary adaptations. Do you think there's something we can glean from this about today's Britain, Leila? Hmm. Or is that not the point? Is there something else we're taking from it? Well, I mean, I thought of not hugely. Um, I, I kind of felt it more was something that might kind of bring us together because I felt that this was actually quite a celebration of Britishness and um, both kind of modern Britishness and kind of British kind of literary traditions it's a very small and personal story I mean the kind of politics of it all don't really come into it Mm. Uh, we've got some kind of slight class structures but people are sort of more painted to be like responsible for their own circumstances there's no like greater kind of speaking to like the systems in place that are making this person in debt or it's all very quite it's all very fluid because you Mm. saw they um, these people like move between these different spaces rather than being deeply entrenched and the only i'd say the only rigid difference is the mannerisms of like some people like the sort of um i can't remember the name of the prep school but the friends that uh copperfield makes who like always see him as this lower class person but otherwise um, most of the cast actually moves like very readily between like different spaces while they they might like gripe about it but it's not something that is set in stone at any point so I think you're right that there's yeah. no defined kind of class no real like defined class structure to it if that no not really and it does seem that even the sort of like more tragically poor people it's a little bit portrayed that that is sort of them that has created that like in particular you've got um a family that are living in an upturned boat on the beach and it's very much well they're not even dreaming any bigger than that like yeah, this whole thing that they don't really have any ambitions to kind of do anything or move maybe a couple of hundred yards away and stuff like that so yeah i don't think it really um delves too much mm. into a kind of uh, wider class struggle i think that's quite interesting really for for a person like amadou nucci do you see a developing of his i don't know ambitions he's somebody who you know, even this week, his new TV series is premiering on Sky, I believe, and it's a sci-fi comedy, something he's never done before. So he's a guy who's clearly still quite you know, a decade and a half into his career, no, two and a half decades into his career, yeah. trying new things. And maybe we don't need to look to him for satire anymore. Yeah, actually, much, much of the cast of David Copperfield is in that new. Um, so oh, yeah, Hugh Laurie's yeah. leading that, isn't he? Uh, yeah, and a few of the other more minor players whose names evade me. Um, yeah, I have. I actually did get to see the first episode of that, and um, let's hope it improves. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I suppose to to wrap up on David Copperfield, then I don't know. Dick Dickens. You know, maybe some people read the, some of his books at school. Certainly, you know, some some of his stories, like The Christmas Carol, has been adapted many times. But his larger novels, like this, seems to be the preserve of Christmas TV, multi mm-hmm. multi part miniseries. Is there uh, a reason to go and see this film rather than to go and read the book or see another adaptation? 
Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, an incredibly like creative and interesting take on it. There's, um, you know, uh, he's really created something that's genuinely hilarious in parts and interesting. It kind of zips by. Um, it's just kind of a lovely, warm hug of a film. Mm. And um, I actually find myself quite annoyed afterwards because you think that something like the BAFTAs really should be giving this a little bit of a boost mm-hmm. and recognising some, you know, fantastic British performances and work that's gone into this. And I find myself irritated that, like, Bombshell got all of uh-huh. those nominations and and something like this was completely overlooked. You'd think that this would be, like, right up their alley. Yeah, you would. I love a period drama. I, I think thought. in the end it's, it, it had a nomination in Best Casting and... But in terms of on the on-camera <laughs> side of things, not so much. Um, Layla, what scores would you give David Copperfield? Uh, in advance, I'd go with a two. Whilst I was watching it, I was just completely on board. Uh, so I'd go with the five. And then i come down a bit, so four. <laughs> <laughs> Cam, any final comments and scores? Yeah, I, I think I'd agree that it's a very um, sort of warm and kind of comforting film, despite it's, uh, like, on paper, it's quite grim. Um, I'm glad that he, I'm glad that Inucci didn't lose sight of, well, the broader political points of the story when he was making it. While it is, um, the way we were talking about it just now, when it was like uh, the poorer characters are sort of victims of their own making, makes, doesn't make it sound so great. <laughs> no. um, but um, I thought it was interesting in sort of seeing how his sort of very, very traditional arguments of wealth corrupting and. Um, different like kind of take on a rags to riches tale i thought it was good i am very fond of inucci's works i'm mainly familiar with death of stalin and the thick of it so i was i'd say i was looking forward to this so i'd say my anticipation was about a three um my enjoyment of it was about a four because again um tilda swinton on the warpath against donkeys is irresistible i thought it was a very lovely light-hearted watch um good january stuff um and um in retrospect i think a three um mm-hmm. mainly because of the sort of slightness of its politics um when i am used to something a little bit sharper from energy especially off the back of something like the death of stalin which is navigating this the collapse of this regime um it felt slight but um i suppose that's fine and fine is how i feel about it in the end so i'd say a three again Okay, well, that is the personal history of David Copperfield in cinemas this week. Also in cinemas this week, up next we have Queen and Slim. While on a forgettable first date, a black couple are pulled over by the police. The situation escalates with sudden and tragic results when the man kills the police officer in self-defence. Terrified and in fear for their lives, the two are forced to go on the run. But the incident is captured on video and goes viral, and the couple unwittingly become a symbol of trauma, terror, grief and pain for people across the country. Cop killers! Cop killers! Who's self-defence? We're in the black money and Clyde. How you gonna outrun the police? We don't have to outrun them. We just have to make sure they don't know where we are. This is Kentucky, my friend. There's some war going on out there, and you welcome this into our home? Is this y'all? Y'all really gave us something to believe in. We need a death for real. Let them go! I got them in Black Panthers. Power to the people. All we can do is go forward. There is nothing back there for us. Let's just keep going. A clip from the trailer for Queen and Slim there. So, Campbell, this is the feature debut from Melina Matsukas, a music video director of Beyonce's Lemonade, amongst other things, and also the first feature screenplay from Lena Waithe, who people may know as you know, 
she wrote a really great episode of Master of None and has appeared on screen as well. Uh, were you excited for this film and did it pan out well for you? Um, when I first heard of it, I quite liked the idea of uh, Black Bonnie and Clyde, as it uh, it sort of self-describes as. I was mostly familiar with uh, Lena Waite's work from the Master of None episode she wrote and her performance in that show, which both of which I really liked. She sort of fell off my radar, apart from um, comments she's made in the press, which I guess I'll get back around to. But I was like, sure, this uh, looks interesting. And then I started hearing about um, the content of the film itself and my interests sort of started to wither. <laughs> um, right. And then upon seeing it, I yeah, I felt that concern was justified. Uh, it's a film that's constantly patting itself on the back for something that it doesn't feel like it's accomplishing very much. Right. It doesn't really have the commitment that you'd expect from a film that is readily having characters saying, we're the Black Bonnie and Clyde, because it has this sort of initial act which is portrayed as a, a revolutionary act, um, and it's seemed to be billed as such in the trailer and like the sort of reversal of this sort of stop-and-search shooting scene that you've seen so many times, this sort of very bold reversal of it, and then it's sort of hand-rings about it for the rest of the movie, and it has this really strange depiction of almost every cop that pops up in the rest of the movie. They're either saints or they're monsters or just negligent, awful, and just completely unrealistic people. It Mm. just doesn't really seem um, capable of engaging with its subject matter in any way beyond the broad strokes, and it doesn't help that beyond that, every decision it seems to make from the get-go is sort of just the wrong one. Like, the idea that this defence attorney, uh, who seems to be the lucid one in a situation that has spiralled out of control, this is Queen played by Jodie Turner-Smith, she's telling Daniel Kluwer, we have to run, you can't talk to your family because you'll make them accomplices. Although in the same scene she is a victim at best. Uh, she's been shot by this cop. She know, seems to have a good head on her shoulders and knows what she's doing and then runs anyway and turns herself into an accomplice while lecturing this other character about it. So it just seems like the very inception of this premise just doesn't really seem to make any emotional sense. You could attribute it to blind panic, but I feel like it just kind of gets off on this wrong foot and just continues down this path. I have a lot of strong feelings about this movie, and so it's going to be quite difficult to espouse all of them without losing my mind. Um, but there's just so many strange notes throughout the whole thing. And in the clip that you heard, there's a... Sam- this, all right, this has been bothering me since I've seen it. In the clip that we just heard in the trailer, there's a sample from the song Running Away by The Far Side. This sample mm-hmm. is used in maybe one of the worst sex scenes I have seen since Munich. And at least Munich had going for it that it had. you could tell its point. It may have been weird and sweaty, but you knew what the scene was going for. <laughs> but here, but here, it's just like, it's like they dared to ask, what if it was that, but it didn't mean anything? I'm, so, I'm sorry, it's so crazy. And then on top of all of that, they're using this sample with this sort of very, <laughs> this very indulgent piano cover uh, track kind of running over it with this intermittent running away sample and then it's intercut with this violent protest yeah and, and <laughs> it's insane I it's insane it might actually be a gunshot with an orgasm <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so crazy so and, and, oh it just I don't oh my god I'm, so, I'm sorry I'm sorry I, I don't understand what led them to some of these decisions like they thought they were making this transient political point by saying all this stuff but a lot of it just comes off like a secondary school kid trying to write poetry Mm -hmm. like there's some really insane lines like the um, stuff that 
they're saying while the so the talking is off screen so their mouths are shut but they're just like very passively like very passionately staring into each other's eyes while someone's saying a line like uh, I want him to show me scars that I never knew I had and it's like what does that mean <laughs> Well, Cameron, looks like you really are losing your mind right before sorry, our very eyes right now. Uh, Layla, <laughs> what did you make of this film? Similar to Cam, different? Uh, pretty similar, if I'm honest. Um, yeah, that, I, that technique of kind of keeping their faces still with the dialogue just playing over them is so weird. And then they just stop doing it. <laughs> like, they lean on it heavy of, early on. And then yeah, it they're away. really into it. And then they just change their mind. So that was extremely great thing. I mean... What I would say for the film is that it is genuinely gorgeous. Mm. I mean, there's a scene in the beginning in the diner that looks just like um, that Edward Hopper painting Nighthawk. There's these long, languid um, shots going through the deep south, which are just stunning. You know, they're lit so beautifully. Their skin looks incredible. Um, That's about it. (laughs) It, It's like, a lot of it feels like it's best styled as like still photography the way like sure. it's cut together and it moves just doesn't really mean anything mm-hmm. to me like there's things like um, Daniel Kaluuya is having his hair cut at one point in the film and it cuts to just like these different very slightly different angles of the same thing yeah. happening it's a very handsome film but it just that I don't think that style is much in service of anything I guess you could say it's a celebration of this sort of uh, black style and the way that the skin looks on camera mm-hmm. I think uh, is a thing that we could use more of in Hollywood because a lot of the time people don't know how to light it. I think it was fine, but I think it wasn't particularly revolutionary here in, when compared to something like, say, um, Moonlight, where everyone has this very otherworldly glow. When it's um, sure. Moonlight, it is not. <laughs> no, <laughs> absolutely not. But it's like it feels like a film entirely constructed around that photograph that's on the poster, and it doesn't like with uh, them in the garage with the. Uh, clear in the velour yeah. tracksuit and her in the dress and they've got the car and it doesn't really feel like it feels like it's constructed outwards from there in a way that doesn't really make sense um, um, I mean there is a certain power to that image I mean we're, yeah. it's very rare that we see two such dark skinned black actors yes. like falling in love and being the leads in something I mean that you know but full credit to them. is it love really though they seem like they hate the each other from bonded. beginning to end <laughs> <laughs> they seem yeah. they, they seem like they can't stand each other's company. Well, yeah, and that kind of speaks to what you mentioned earlier about her character's motivations are like deeply annoying because it's actually just a really old-fashioned portrayal of femininity of that you're just going to sacrifice everything even though technically you could just leave now. You've been <laughs> shot in the leg. Just go to the hospital. There was an incident. Maybe be like, oh, okay, well, he went that away when he actually went the other way. But there's no reason for you to uh, This probably should have been a legal drama. Once they said that yeah. she was a defence attorney, it's just like, I don't know, defend him in court or something. He's your tender date. You don't need to, like, throw your life away. It could have been a very different film. But that picture that's on the poster does play a role in the plot. It's a photograph that's taken off them. And that's mm-hmm. one of the key references it makes to Bonnie and Clyde. The fact that a photograph can create a moment, create a, um, a, a whole new moment for a, a class struggle or a, any sort of political struggle. Sure. And that feeds into how it's this black Bonnie and Clyde film. And unlike maybe you were just saying about David Copperfield, doesn't feel that it's pushing forward any great statement or doesn't feel like it's a film that needs to be made right now. This film seems like it very much wants to to be a film of the moment and I wonder where does it fall down for being that well I think for one thing like if they're Bonnie and Clyde they're the most passive Bonnie and Clyde ever That's I mean so they hard. don't really make any I mean after the first decision which is really her they don't really do anything they're sort of you know just bouncing around from place to place and kind of reacting to things as they come um, 
I didn't love it, which is pretty apparent. Um, I did love seeing Bakeem Woodbine. I love him. Um, I felt in some ways he was like a perfect embodiment of what was wrong with this film. And that, like, you've got a phenomenal actor like him. Um, you've made him a pimp. You've styled him. He looks incredible. He's wearing a, some sort of gorgeous, like, custom Gucci. And, you know, he delivers all of his lines really well. But at the end of the day, you still putting Bikim Woodbine as a pimp again. Like, can't we do something different also, with someone of his caliber? Also, um, I feel like his character is a route into another problem I had with the film in that it kind of feels like it hates women yeah. <laughs> a lot of the time. Like, Queen never really comes off as much more than, like, a sort of this humorless scold. She's constantly lecturing. But, like, maybe it's too little too late. She's rarely given moments where she gets to have charm. I suppose that's not the most important thing. But then when you look at, when you examine it alongside Bucking Woodbine's character, who she admits is responsible for a great trauma in her life. Yeah. And, um, and then also you see him smacking around like other women. And then she's just, then the ne- very next scene, she's just like, all right, bye, cool. Uh, and she's just completely fine with it. And it just seems like the film is as well. It doesn't really interrogate anything about his character not at least not while he's on screen but then even when it's discussed it's sort of just like hand waved away yeah just a quick oh no he's got PTSD uh, PTSD it's fine it's fine everything's fine I have a feeling I know what's coming but Campbell what scores would you give this Uh, I think for an anticipation two it was probably at about a three and then I started hearing things Um, enjoyment I'm one (laughs) um (laughs) Um, I thought I had a grip on it while it was still in its early stages and then they encountered the sort of cowboy hat wearing good cop character and it just completely just went downhill and stayed there for me. Um, in retrospect, one, I I probably couldn't go lower than that if I tried, but... Layla? Um, I really liked Lena Waite's Thanksgiving episode of Marston and of None, so I was... And I loved Daniel Kalua, so uh, I was probably at a four watching it. Um at a three and I ended up at a one it, it kind of it actually took a moment for me afterwards to sit down and really think about what I'd saw for me to appreciate how many levels it fails at mm. <laughs> so a, lo- a lot of decisions made all of them wrong yes. oh wow well that's the last word on Queen and Slim that's in cinemas this week as is David Copperfield up next we have Film Club, which is a restoration that's hitting cinemas this month as well. It is The Holy Mountain. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Part funded by John Lennon, The Holy Mountain is Alejandro Jodorowsky's most ambitious film. It's, it's a sprawling phantasmagoria of sacrilegious visual excess and existential yearning, which the New York Times described as dazzling. It's had a 4K restoration, it's in certain cinemas and coming out on Blu-ray as well. Let's hear a clip. Nothing in your education or experience can have prepared you for this film. Alejandro Jodorowsky's The Holy Mountain. The Holy Mountain is a film completely outside the entire tradition of motion picture art. It is outside the tradition of modern theater. A bit of the trailer of The Holy Mountain there. I love those retro trailers. So, Campbell, you unfortunately have to leave us a little early today from the pod recording. Was this your first Jodorowsky experience, and was it a good trip? It was. Um, I think I'm still figuring that out, <laughs> whether uh, I fully enjoyed the trip or not. But just from the moment that the sort of messianic mis- figure appears, and I was very ready to go on this sort of acid trip, the visuals I, I thought were incredible, and I'm still sort of trying to pass together the sort of overall allegory of it because it's throwing a lot of <laughs> either either very blunt or very wild symbolism at you in every scene um but if anything i loved the craft of it and i just appreciated the boldness of it all the um machine orgasm section was uh, a lot <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Cam. And on that note, <laughs> thank you for joining us this week, Cam. We'll, we'll 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 check in with you soon. Make sure that you're okay after watching both Queen and Slim and the Holy Mountain in one week. I'm just going to be processing all of this for a while. Um, anyway, thanks for having me on, Layla. It really is a very strange film. Luckily, we're not going to force ourselves into explaining it before we leave today, because otherwise we'll be here a long time. But I did get a very good tweet from one of our listeners, Dave Liang of the Shanghai Restoration Project band. He said that in Holy Mountain, the kernel of what makes Jodorowsky great is there, but like many artists in their youth, it's still a bit unrefined. His last two movies, most recent movies, The Dance of Reality and Endless Poetry, are genius works of art. They're two films that I completely missed on release. They're more recent. He had a long period in the back half of the 70s and the 80s and the 90s where he only made one or two films. Mm-hmm. Most of his reputation rests on these 70s trips. Uh, Leila, did, have you seen these before? Or this is a new one for you? I have seen this before in, um, I think, the perfect way to see it. That when I was about 23, I went to a very pretentious party and they were projecting it on all of the walls oh, and it was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I highly, highly recommend it for that. Um, yeah, I think it's kind of hard to quantify something like this in terms of good or bad um it's kind of got this great breakneck speed and so like it doesn't actually let you sit with things for very long so you know if you're not interested in this imagery here's another one um all Mm -hmm. kind of evolving along the same things of you know colonialism and christ and uh the commodification of christ and stuff like that a lot of it's quite grotesque so Mm. um i wouldn't um recommend trying to eat a snack whilst you watch it as i uh, found out to 
my detriment. Unless um, it's a, a, a face of Christ. Yeah, sort of which is yeah, delicious. Thing, which, yeah. which um, if only I'd known. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know there's some really great little bits in here. Um, I particularly loved when the Inca iguanas are colonized yes. by the Spanish bullfrogs and then they explode. <laughs> <laughs> um, but oh, as it went on, I do think a lot of the kind of endless sex objects of women and there's one who like really enjoys getting raped near the beginning and there's kind of it it starts to get a little bit puerile in mm. in in that department and i did feel that this is not a person who likes women <laughs> right towards the end there's um just some kind of strange humping of a mountain for no reason and he does seem to always go to that with any of the kind of female mm-hmm. characters that um emerge so um I mean, maybe he. I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing some more of his work because you know filmmakers do um, mature um, at the time, and this did feel like, in many respects, the work of quite a young man. Yes, but um, you know, worth the two hours if you have it. And so very of its time mm. in terms of an art movie that could become a cult film. Yeah. So this film and his previous film El Topo, which is an acid western, and similarly goes off the rails and goes purely surreal in its succession of imagery and nudity and uh, sacrilegious symbolism. Um, they were both big on the midnight movie circuit mm-hmm. and that's where John Lennon and George Harrison saw his films and that's when John Lennon said to Alan Klein, head of Apple Co., uh, we need to fund this guy's next movie. So, yeah. um, could you imagine if, like, who, what would the equivalent today be? There's not even an equivalent filmmaker today, but can you imagine if Chris Martin said, I'm going to fund the next film by this exploitative edgelord filmmaker? I don't know. Um, yeah, no, it does, um, it does to kind of speak to... George Harrison and John Lennon as as you know depending on which Beatle you prefer that you know George Harrison funded Monty Python and John Lennon funded this <laughs> yes um, not to give anything away but one of the Monty Python films has a very similar ending to this as well it really does <laughs> and that's very true actually there's there's something about how Alejandro Jodorowsky is so happy to center himself in these films mm-hmm. and not just himself if you watch El Topo he plays the main character who's a spaghetti western type figure and he's accompanied by a mostly naked young boy who's played by his own son. And sure. I do wonder, Brontis Jodorowsky's now an actor. He showed up very recently in the most recent um, Fantastic Beasts movie, of okay. all things. And it's weird to think, I saw you very naked before you were the, the age of consent. Yeah. No, there's a lot of quite surprising child nudity Yes, that you probably wouldn't be able to go with now. Um, there's, there's a lot of stuff with um, one of the disabled characters that also, thankfully, you would not be able to get away with now. Again, but, very of its time. Yes. And it, he's a filmmaker. Which is us being generous because yeah. uh, some of it is, you know, I'm pretty sure even the 70s it wasn't really considered Perhaps okay to not. do that. But, but certainly as a visual filmmaker, mm-hmm. you'll, you will see... Imagery, it, it's like Louis Benwell yeah. or, or you know, actual art cinema where you are seeing surreal artwork come to life Indeed. and take strange turns that you're not expecting. And maybe it, it would be best watched if you're under the influence of something. Certainly they apparently were under the influence on set at various points yeah. uh, improvising this th- this film. But I don't know. I, I find Jodorowsky sometimes more interesting to read about than to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be in a very specific mood. 
for this sort of thing. You do, but thankfully, I don't think it necessarily needs to be watched in one sitting. I think uh-huh. you can kind of take uh, three or four things if you kind of get tired of it, because there's no real thread throughout that you have to particularly cling on to. Mm-hmm. There's a really good wealth of writing out there about this film, so, so, some of which I think speaks to how the 70s avant-garde experimental uh, countercultural cinema movement has been reappraised over the years. There's a piece on Vice Canada, I remember reading a few years ago, that I dug, dug out again about watching this film with your mum. Yeah. And it's like, oh, that's such a Vice article, circa 2006, <laughs> where it's taking a piece of extreme cinema and watching it with, with a parent. Um, but it, it's true, this sort of cinema has, in a way, become something that's projected at hipster parties yes. or um, you, it's uh, a sort of gotcha where you mm-hmm. sit someone down and watch what their reaction is or you go to a late night screening. But maybe this re release, you know, Arrow Films have put out his first three films in in new restorations. Maybe it's his time to go back and see what maybe we missed, maybe what we can take from this. Yeah, I think it would make a fantastic uh, second or third date film. Uh, Just, you know, something to, you know, talk about afterwards. There's plenty that's there and it kind of zips along quite nicely that you can kind of give it, you know, 75% of your attention and kind of be checking on the person that you're with. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly worth seeing. And you will go deeper? I fear going deeper, but I will give it a go. (laughs) Who knows if you'll ever come back. But anyway, listeners, that is The Holy Mountain. Let us know what you think if you do uh, drop that film at at any point soon, or if you have any other feelings on Alejandro Jodorowsky. I would make a very quick plug. When he wasn't making films, he became a very prolific uh, comic writer in France in the 1980s, and his work has been republished in the last 10 years or so, and it's all amazing. Art by Jean Garreau, known as Mobius, one of the best artists artist there is that's in some ways i think a better representation of his vision than his films but i might be saying something quite controversial there anyway let us know what you think about the holy mountain yodogoski's films or either of the new releases this week at the usual channels that is at truth and movies on twitter truth and movies at tcolondon.com via email or at the comments section at lwlies.com slash podcast so new releases next week are The Lighthouse, the new film by Robert Eggers, who you may know from The Witch. We have Richard Jewell from a new filmmaker called Clint Eastwood. And in Film Club, we have another weird movie from the 70s, this time the Czech film Valerie and Her Week of Wonders, which the second run DVD legends are putting out. Let us know what you think of that at the usual channels. Layla, thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you for having me. And Cam as well. I'm Michael Leader. And as always, this has been a 7 Digital production. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.